This is Purple Hall. Welcome to Preble Hall, a podcast about naval history from the United States Naval Academy Museum in Annapolis. And welcome to another episode of Preble Hall, a podcast about naval history. I'm Claude Barabee, the director of the United States Naval Academy Museum in Annapolis. And with us today is one of our curators, Grant Walker. Grant is a graduate of the United States Military Academy at West Point, And he's a longtime curator here at the museum and also an author on British dockyard models. So we're going to be talking about the Anglo-Dutch Wars today. And Grant, why are the Anglo-Dutch Wars an interesting period to study? Personally, from the first time I became aware of the Anglo-Dutch Wars, I was fascinated. And the more I read about them, the more interesting they became. First of all, from a naval perspective, these three wars that took place in the 1650s, 60s, and 70s were purely naval wars. There were no real attempts. There was one minor attempt toward the end of the Third War uh, for a land campaign, but otherwise they are restricted to these um, huge fleet engagements, uh, one after another. I think there were 18 or 19 of them in the three wars, and they almost all took place in the narrow seas, in the uh, in the English Channel, which are very constricted waters. So you have battle after battle being fought between fleets of 50, 60, 70, even more than 100 ships on both sides in the restricted waters of the English Channel. So it's a... Uh, um, it's a period that is absolutely rife with naval actions, naval warfare, and these two powers that fought, the, the Dutch Republic and uh, England, um, at the time were without question the leading Protestant powers in Europe. And, and this, fo- this follows the Thirty Years' War. Uh, the first Anglo-Dutch War uh, starts in, in 1652. Yes, what is this alliance system? Was it an alliance system that had broken down uh, following the, the Thirty Years' War? Yes, it had. To put the Dutch rise to prominence in perspective, they had been fighting the Spanish. These were the Spanish Netherlands at the time, and they'd been fighting the Spanish for independence for 80 years before they finally broke away in 1648, just on the cusp of these Anglo-Dutch wars. Um, they featured a major naval battle, the Battle of the Downs in 1639, where one of the greatest of the Dutch admirals uh, basically eliminated the Spanish. Uh, His name was Trump, Martin Harpertson Trump. And that, in, in time, nine years later, forced the Spanish to relinquish their claim to the northern seven provinces of the United Netherlands. There were 18 in all. They kept the southern 11, which became Belgium in in the long run, and they lost control of the northern seven provinces, became uh, which became the United uh, Dutch Republic. How could they build up a fleet so quickly as a major power following independence? Well, they already had a large fleet to fight the Spanish, 
Um, one of the things that's fascinating about the Dutch in particular was their ability to crank out enormous numbers of ships in a country that had no trees. So where are their colonies at this point? Well— Or was it, or was it simply from trade? It was from it was from trade. They turned to the Baltic for their for their for the wood for their uh, for their fleet. The Baltic and Russia, uh, the same thing that the English used later on. The English had North America at the time. The Dutch were also in uh, in New York, but it was the English who used our our trees for their masts and whatnot. The the Dutch uh, mainly were involved in obtaining their wood from uh, from northern Europe, and then they devised fascinating um, procedures, uh, techniques for building ships quickly. The, the Dutch had these seven provinces. Uh, five of them were maritime. Uh, Amsterdam and Rotterdam, essentially, Zeeland, were the two biggest. And they could put out a fleet of 70 ships, fight a battle, lose... 30 of them, and within six months, they're back up and running again. Why? What was their shipbuilding, what were their shipbuilding techniques like compared to, say, the British or the Spanish? What made them unique? They were more cookie cutter than the English in in the broadest sense, and they borrowed ideas from both the northern European building tradition and the southern European building tradition. Uh, so it was sort of a, a half-shell, um, half-frame uh, approach to shipbuilding, and they would build their ships, uh, as I say, more or less cookie-cutter fashion, churning them out. It still amazes me to to imagine how they were able to do this. Why didn't the British do that? Uh, the English had their own uh, their own shipbuilding tradition which derived from the the viking tradition originally but uh the big switch there were there were so many modifications to the way they built these ships but the main thing was the vikings built their ships in a clinker fashion where the where the sides of the ship the shell of the ship was built first by overlapping horizontal uh planks and uh clenching them, they called uh, putting uh, nails in and and driving them uh, at a right angle down. So they were one board on the side of the ship supported the next. But you get a a hull that isn't smooth. The southern tradition was building these smooth uh, shelled ships because they built the frame first and then they just put uh, horizontal planking over the frame. And both the Dutch and the English adopted uh, a bit of uh, uh, both traditions. But the English, there is a, there's quite a, a difference between the English ships and the Dutch ships. Both at the same time, they're both sending sailors all over the world. But simply due to geography, the Dutch could not build deep-drafted ships because the Netherlands is, is, is uh, enclosed by shallow waters and sandbanks and whatnot, whereas the, the English had deep harbors and they could get right out into, into deep water. So their ships could be quite a bit bigger and were quite a bit bigger um, from first to last. In one of the 
one of the early battles in the First Anglo-Dutch War, the biggest ship uh, on the Dutch side had 59 guns and nothing else had more than 48, whereas the English had lots and lots of ships with 70 and 80 guns and eventually 100 guns. The English were able to build much stouter, much bigger uh, ships which could carry much bigger armament. They also used better cannon. From beginning to end, the English ships as, as fighting platforms were superior to the Dutch. Now, the Dutch were able to use the shallow draft of their ships to their own benefit, particularly oh, so. in the last of the three Anglo-Dutch wars when Michael de Ruyter, the greatest of the Dutch admirals, he knew where those sandbanks were, and he was able to keep his ships uh, in the shallows where they could go, but the English couldn't. And he was able to maneuver his, his fleet in three different battles uh, where the fate of the Netherlands was, was uh, on his shoulders. And in each case, he used those shallow waters off the coast of, uh, of the Netherlands to his great advantage and was able to get a, 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 an English ship uh, stuck on a sandbank and then they destroyed it. So whereas the English had bigger, stouter, heavier armed guns than the Dutch, under the right leadership, uh, the Dutch could use their shallow-drafted vessels to their own advantage. Now, during this time, the, the uh, Cromwell is in charge of England, Yes, uh, the Commonwealth. How did the Navy change under Cromwell? First of all, to understand Cromwell's position in this first Anglo-Dutch war, he took over in 1649, which was— right at the end of a decade-long civil war in England. People don't know it these days, but the English Civil War in the 1640s was as nasty as the American Civil War in the 1860s. Uh, at the end of that period, um, it, it, the war pitted those who wanted Parliament to hold the reins of government versus those who supported the king. And the king lost, and eventually he lost his head. Cromwell took over, but when he surveyed the Navy, he determined that he couldn't trust the loyalty of his leading admirals, that they might be closet royalists. And he had just deposed the monarchy, so he didn't trust them at all. So in order to lead the fleet, the English fleet, he had to turn to generals, land generals, uh, three of them, um, a guy named Monk, a guy named Dean, and a guy named Robert Blake. Of the three, only Blake had any naval experience at all. But these were hardened soldiers, and they were quick learners, as a matter of fact. Now, and Blake, Blake had a title of, of General of the Sea. Yes, they, they called them um, um, generals at sea, the three of those. They couldn't call them an admiral, so they called them generals at sea. And they all turned out to be exceedingly capable. Why, what could they do that the, that the admirals could not? Well, the admirals might have been able to maneuver the fleets better than the generals at sea, but he couldn't trust the admirals. And the generals at sea brought with them the idea in mind that warfare should be an organized effort. 
when they looked at the early battles that were being fought at sea, they were taken aback at the chaos, at the disorganization, and they quickly realized that very frequently in this melee style of warfare that both the English and the Dutch uh, excelled at in the 1640s um, had serious drawbacks, this melee warfare, uh, given that once the, the two sides engaged uh, in, in fleets or large squadrons, the battle tended to um, break down into individual battles uh, involving two or three ships against four or five ships, the idea in being to surround an enemy ship, put a, a broadside into it if you could, and then board the enemy ship and fight it out on the decks. Uh, both the English and the Dutch excelled at that, but these generals at sea didn't like it at all because the commander-in-chief of the fleet, as soon as the battle started, he lost control of his forces. The thunder of the cannons, the smoke from the gunpowder, he couldn't communicate with the rest of his fleet, so the battle devolved down upon the shoulders of the individual ship's captains, and these generals at sea said, that's not how we do it in the army. So uh, the, the one... Uh, general at sea, Robert Blake, who did have naval experience and was a ferocious fighter, he's primarily responsible for the English adopting a new naval tactic, the line ahead, the line of battle, um, the line formation, um, in which uh, at the outset of the First Anglo-Dutch War, Actually, I think it, it happened in the late 1640s. Um, they, they broke the English fleet down into three squadrons, red, white, and blue. And amongst those squadrons, they broke each one of those down into three divisions. They would line up bow to stern in a line. The fleet admiral would take his position in the middle of the middle squadron. But they didn't call it the middle squadron, they called it the center. So he would place his flagship, the biggest and most opulent of the ships, in the middle of the center squadron. So he had half his ships in front of him and half his ships behind him. He liked that because that's organized. And then he would take his second in command and place him in charge of the uh, the lead squadron, they didn't call it the lead squadron, they called it the van, short for vanguard. So he's at the front of the, of, the, of the line of battle formation, and he placed himself in the middle of that front squadron. And then the third in command was placed in charge of the rear squadron. And for once, they actually did call it that, and that's how he took his title, rear admiral. So it's all very organized. And they, by this time, or shortly afterwards, they also devised a, a, a primitive signaling, uh, or, or I, it was more an identification process, because in the smoke and, and din of battle, it's easy to lose track of who's, on, who's where. So they flew flags from the top of the masts in a certain order. The center squadron under the command of the uh, admiral of the fleet, flew a 
plain red flag from the top of the masthead, uh, of the main masthead. His vice admiral flew a red flag from the foremast, and his rear admiral flew a red flag from the mizzenmast. And then up in the, in the van, that became, initially it was blue, but it eventually became white. So the admiral in charge of the van would fly a white flag from the mainmast. His uh, subordinate in the front of the white squadron would fly the same white flag, but from the foremast. And his own rear admiral in the white squadron would fly a white flag from the mizzenmast, and then the blue did the same back in the rear. Is, is this how the, the whole idea of signal books come about, later comes it, about? It does. That was just an just identification. So you could look out, and if the smoke blew away, you could see, oh, there's the admiral, okay, or there's, uh, they could tell who was what, but they still didn't signal. He couldn't, he didn't have a letter combination or whatever, so they signaled with trumpets, and they signaled uh, by sending a boat from one ship to the next, if they could make it. It was better than the Malay, where they lost total control. But it wasn't until much later, 200 years later, that they figured out a way of, of um, identifying letters in an alphabet that they could key to uh, a book of codes. I showed you yesterday the first printed English book of signals was published in 1702, but that's just the first book that was printed. They'd already figured this stuff out back in the Anglo-Dutch Wars, and they didn't change it much for the rest of the Age of Sail. Because during the first Anglo-Dutch Wars, if, if I recall, you have turns and corpens at sea, a, Dutch, a tactic that the Dutch hadn't figured out until later, correct? That's correct. The Dutch also had a serious problem. You remember I told you they had seven provinces Five of them were maritime. They all wanted their own admirals. They all had their own admiralty. So there wasn't one fleet for the Dutch. Well, they would mix and, ma uh, and mash them together. But then they all had to fight about who got prominence. Was it going to be the guy from Zeeland? Was it going to be the guy from, from uh, Amsterdam? Which one of the admiralty, uh, which ones of the admirals were going to take what position in the English line or, or the Dutch line when they finally figured out. Well, you, you didn't have a king. You didn't have a navy board. Who would select this, the, the positions? The individual provinces would put that forth, and then they would argue it out in, uh, in the estates. Uh, the Dutch also faced a serious problem in that one of their leading admirals, a guy they called him Double Wit, Witte de Wit it was his name, um, he was despised by one and all. I mean, they just loathed him. He, he even tried to take uh, to select a ship as his flagship, and the crew wouldn't let him aboard. I mean, everybody hated De Witt. So they had these, these very intense personal rivalries, and they got their feelings hurt, and then they wouldn't go to sea at all and so forth with, with one of their, their uh, fellow Dutchmen. The, the Dutch always had trouble with command and control, um, Fortunately for the Dutch, just like the English in the, Revol in the um, Wars of the French Revolution, where they produced this incredible cadre of very skilled and disciplined uh, and savvy uh, commanding officers at sea, so did the Dutch in the Anglo-Dutch Wars. 
They, they produced two of the greatest admirals in the history of the Age of Sail, this fellow Martin Harpertson Trump, who essentially won the big battle that freed uh, the Dutch Republic from Spanish control, and then he also participated in the First Anglo-Dutch War. But he was killed in that First Anglo-Dutch War, and that set the Dutch back very seriously. The other one of their greatest admirals was a guy named de Ruyter. And many people who have studied naval history to an extent rate de Ruyter even greater than Nelson, because de Ruyter never had enough to work with, and he was able to beat the English time and time again with inferior forces because he was a superior admiral. What role does the uh, 1651 Navigation Act in England play in the First War? It played a terrific role. If you think about it— Well, first of all, sorry, what what, what was the the Navigation Act of, of 1651? It basically reinforced what the English had already been saying, uh, and that is that England has primacy in the Narrow Seas, in the English Channel. That's England's narrow channel. It's not the Netherlands or it's not the Dutch narrow, uh, narrow waters. It's England's, and they claimed that right. And they also claimed the right to forbid other countries from trading with their colonies or with England itself. Um, they wanted a closed sea. The Dutch, on the other hand, were completely opposite. They had gotten filthy rich, not only, well, by establishing their own colonies, principally in the Spice Islands, but also in the Caribbean and in Africa. Um, and what eventually becomes New York. And what eventually New, New, becomes New Netherlands, New Netherlands or uh, New Amsterdam, where the city mm-hmm. was. So they were getting raw materials from their colonies, but they were also very clever shipwrights, and they devised transport ships like nobody else had, the flute being the most famous one, which was a transport ship with a large cargo capacity, but you could sail it with a small crew. And that cut down on all kinds of uh, costs, and they became the, the leading nation in the carrying trade. They carried everybody's timber from point A to point B, and everybody's uh, fish and whatnot. Fish being another point of contention between the English and the Dutch, in that the Dutch said, we'll fish wherever we feel like fishing, even if it's off England's coasts. And the English took terrific uh, umbrage at that. But the Dutch had figured out still another kind of ship, whose name escapes me for the moment. But it was a fishing vessel that could stay at sea for weeks at a time and wasn't dependent on ice so much as it was salt. And they could go out there and they could stay on station and fish the Grand Banks, for example, and stay there and fish them out. And the English didn't have anything comparable to that. So the English resented the Dutch wealth. The English resented the fact that the Dutch were doing all of the carrying, even of English goods. The English were very upset that the Dutch were fishing out their waters, and all of these things persuaded them to go to war in that first Anglo-Dutch war. But again, with Cromwell, Cromwell wasn't, he wasn't enthusiastic about this, but his three generals at sea, uh, particularly after Trump was killed, the Dutch 
Trump was killed in 1653, the fact that they had superior tactics, superior ships, and good admirals, good generals at sea, won the day for them in that first Anglo-Dutch war. Cromwell was just very happy with that. You know, he didn't go back to war with the Dutch for the rest of his time. Because he dies in, what, 1659? 49. 49. And his son took over, but he didn't last either. And the second, the second Anglo-Dutch War begins again in 1665, and this is amidst, they go to war when you've got the plague, and then the following year you have the Great Fire of London. Yes. So why would they get into the, I don't know which came first, the, the plague or the, or the war, but why do they get into a war with the Dutch at this time? The, the peace treaty that Cromwell drove to bring the first Anglo-Dutch war to a conclusion was very kind to the Dutch. They let them keep everything, basically no harm, no foul. And the Dutch responded from losing the first Anglo-Dutch war by getting richer and richer still. They rebuilt their fleet. They weren't so stupid as to realize that one of the reasons they had lost the battles is because the Dutch had superior tactics. So in that um, interwar period, they adopted line-ahead tactics. They learned how to do it. They still had to deal with as many as 21 different admirals from different parts, all thin-skinned. But at least they adopted the line-ahead. The English watched this, and, and more and more parliamentarians and even the men on the street said, look, we beat them in, the, in, the, in this war that was recently concluded, and look, they're still everywhere. They're still in our fisheries. They're still in getting richer and richer from the spice trade. So eventually one of the parliamentarians stood up and said, what we want is more of what the Dutch have, and we're going to pick a fight, and we're going to take that colonial empire and all of those riches from the Dutch, not by attacking their empire like the English did in the Seven Years' War, but by by attacking their trade. Um, there's another aspect that colors all three of the Anglo-Dutch wars, and that is geography. Not only were the, the, um, the waters off, off the Netherlands shallow and full of sandbanks and whatnot, just looking at the two um, nations uh, um, on, a, on a larger scale, the English had the advantage of everything because ships coming into Holland had to run a gauntlet. Either they had to come up the English Channel or they had to go around north of England risking all the weather, and they were still within just a few miles of English ports, whereas English ships could come in from the west and land in England and the Dutch are nowhere, nowhere there. So they, the English always had the geographical uh, advantage over the Dutch. So in the 1660s, Pepys wrote it down. That, that's another Samuel wonderful Pepys. thing about this, these three Anglo-Dutch wars is that the greatest diarist uh, in the English language, or certainly one of them, Samuel Pepys, was right there recording the reactions not only in Parliament and at the Navy Board, but on the street as well. What, are the, what, what does the populace think about the conduct of the war and so forth? And um, still another reason why the Anglo-Dutch wars are so fun to study 
is because they corresponded with the emergence of the greatest uh, marine painters that have ever been. Such as? Uh, two in particular, uh, Willem van de Velde the Elder and his son Willem van de Velde the Younger. Both of these guys were Dutch. They were raised as marine painters, and they spent years and years and years uh, recording images of Dutch shipping and other ships that would come into Dutch harbors. And then in the beginning of the Third Anglo-Dutch Wars, the Van de Veldes went over to England. And did the same and thing And did the same thing with the English fleet. And their work, uh, as I say, it's, it's still unexcelled. The, all of the great painters that followed them and that preceded them, nobody's ever done more to record actual combat at sea than the Vandeveldes did, not only in terms of quantity, because they did thousands of images, but also in terms of quality. When they saw a ship, they counted the gun ports, and if it had 12 on the lower deck, they put 12 on the lower deck of their image of that vessel. They're, like, they're almost photographic, and they cover the whole period of the Anglo-Dutch Wars. So we have these visual images of these incredible naval battles. We have Samuel Pepys recording what everybody thought about it, certainly in England, and, um, and the wars are so full of huge battles with, as I say, 200 ships and 20,000 men fighting in very confined uh, waters dependent on the wind and the currents. What were the major battles of the Second Anglo-Dutch War? The Second Anglo-Dutch War started off going England's way. There was a battle called the Four Days Fight, and there are whole books written about this one battle in 1666 that took four days and four nights to conclude. And one of, one of the examples is Frank Fox's book, A Distant Storm. Indeed. It's fascinating. It, it's a page-turner. You can't put it down. Frank is the leading historian of this period, bar none. At the end of the four days fight, it was tactically a draw, but the Dutch clearly, well, they, they both claimed victory, but the Dutch came off better in that battle. Not too many, lots of people were killed, not too many ships were, were destroyed. There, there were serious casualties on both sides. But right after that, they fought the St. James Day battle, just a matter of weeks or months later, and the English completely took apart the Dutch. Was, is De Reuter still in, in command? De Reuter was still in command. I don't, he was at the Four Days Battle. I don't know if he was at the St. James Day fight or not. I can't remember. But I do remember that the English were feeling so good that they had whipped the Dutch at the St. James Day fight, and they claimed they had beaten them at the Four Days Battle before that that Charles II foolishly determined to put the fleet in mothballs over the winter because he figured the Dutch wouldn't try anything during the winter months because they didn't like to fight in the winter months uh, at any time in the Age of Sail, and because Charles II was broke. 
which was a problem for him all the time. Um, so in 1667, or in the winter of 1666-67, he essentially mothballed the fleet uh, at Chatham Dockyard on the Medway River. Knowing they needed a, block, uh, a knockout punch, the Dutch pensionary, his name was, a guy named Johan de Witt, there's that de, de Witt, this is W-I-T-T, he persuaded de Router to make a raid on the Medway, to sail right into England, sail right up the river, and attack those British, the British fleet at anchor with all the guns stripped off them. What's, what's roughly the distance from the English Channel up the Medway to... I think it's about eight eight or ten miles, something like that. And it's very twisty, and the English had put barriers all over the place on that. But the Dutch, uh, uh, DeWitt uh, convinced De Router to give it a try. They assembled a big fleet, caught the English totally by surprise, and they grabbed a couple of pilots, English pilots, and in an astonishing feat of seamanship, they got to the English fleet and they burned it at anchor. Several big, uh, it'd be like losing aircraft carriers today. How, how, much, how much advance notice did the British have on this? They must have had some warning when, you're, when you've got this massive fleet coming up the river. They, they didn't know it until they got right to the, uh, the, the English shore. Uh, they were caught completely off guard. It was, I, as far as I can recall, there, there's no it was coastal people, watch at this time. The coastal watch is what saw them, but by then they're all they're you know within a mile or two. Yeah. Um, they not only uh, burned a number of those English battleships, but they also hauled one of them back to England, the English fleet flagship, and her. Her sternboard is still proudly displayed in the Rijksmuseum uh, in, in Amsterdam as a uh, as a prize of war. And that's an extraordinary maritime museum. Oh, it is. It is. It's it. one of the best in the world. Yes, absolutely. It's one of the great art museums in the world, and their naval ha uh, holdings are just yeah. terrific. I'm sorry, the, the, the Rijksmuseum, it's different from— uh... From the Skatefart Museum. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, sorry about the, that. The the, the uh, Amsterdam has two yeah. insanely wonderful uh, maritime collections, and then Rotterdam is just you know half an hour away from that, and they have one as well. Um, and these are all based on what they call the Dutch Golden Age, which was the the 17th century when Amsterdam became the richest city in the world easily. And this is the same time as these Anglo-Dutch wars are going on. Now, you mentioned the Great Fire and the Plague. Those both happened in 1666. Uh, 1666 and 1667, Samuel Pepys observed in his diary that uh, the Dutchmen were everywhere. He had a very crude way of saying it, um, but uh, they're, they're under every every rock you'll find another dutchman here they're they're omnipresent and that was on on the heels of london burning down where four-fifths of the of the city burned and then the, there was the plague of that year as well so with all that in mind charles was more than happy to bring that war to a close and again it, it was a draw the first anglo-dutch war went to the english and they were very kind in the peace negotiations. 
the Second Anglo-Dutch War was essentially a draw, and um, they both, uh, there were no enormous changes in um, their colonial empires and so forth. And then the third one comes in in 1672. Again, these all seem to be two-year two year wars. Why did they get in the war in Charles II, it's all Charles II on this one. He made a secret compromise treaty with Louis XIV, his arch enemy. He decided to throw in with Louis and attack the Dutch together with the combined Anglo-French fleet, which he did. This also involved France in invading the Netherlands with an army. And it was so dire, the, the, the fate of the Dutch Republic was hanging by a thread because the English clapped a blockade on the coast, which they were always trying to do, but they did it again. The French invaded the country, and the only thing they could do to stop from being overrun was open the dikes. So they did open the dikes flooded the whole countryside because the whole country's beneath sea level, stopped the French in their tracks, but it also destroyed all of the farmland, all of the animals, all of the everything. So the people of the Netherlands, of the Dutch Republic at any rate, I suppose they acknowledged that they had stopped the French, but they were furious. And in fact, they were so furious that they turned on the pensionary, the grand pensionary, this same fellow, Johann de Witt, and dismembered him, basically. The mob got to him and, and his brother and literally yes. dismembered him piece by piece, leaving the Dutch Republic, you know, without a, essentially a, a strong leader of the government. They had to turn to, they did turn to their Stadthouder, which was essentially a prince, they didn't have a king, it's a republic, but they did have nobility, and they basically turned the battle over to the future William III of England, who fought the French, and they turned over, so they stopped the French invasion, but they still have this enormous English-French fleet that's threatening Amsterdam at the same time. Once the French army was stopped, the fate of the nation devolved upon de Ruyter's shoulders. Once again, the Dutch, with all of these problems, they're still able to turn out this enormous fleet. De Ruyter, this is where he had his greatest victories because he didn't win just one enormous fleet engagement or two, he won three in a row with an inferior fleet, but because he was better. He was just better than the English uh, opponents. He was able to maneuver his fleet more effectively and to use those shallows again to the point where the, the English ran the pride of their fleet, a three-decker, up on a sandbank and the, and the, uh, the Dutch burned her. Uh, de Ruyter is the one who saved uh, the Netherlands from utter defeat. So the English won the first war. The Dutch really got the better of 
of the English in the Second War. And the Third War, they were both totally exhausted by then, and they both sued for peace. In the aftermath, they eventually invited the Dutch Stadthalder, Willem, to become the English king because Charles II was uh, essentially Roman Catholic. That's one reason that he threw in with Louis XIV, where his country was purely Protestant. He personally favored the Catholic faith, and his brother declared himself Catholic, uh, the future James II. The people of the nation were afraid that James would have a child who would be raised as a Catholic and turn the nation Catholic. So they ran James off the, fleet, uh, off the throne in 1688. This is only 15 years after the end of the, of the Anglo-Dutch Wars, and replaced him with whom? With this Dutch guy um, who, be, who had married the daughter of James II, Mary, and they became William and Mary of William and Mary fame. At that point, everybody could see that the future, uh, the next century, was going to be in English control rather than Dutch control. The Dutch continued to hold on to their colonial uh, empire, particularly in the Spice Islands in today's Indonesia. They continued having a major um, uh, control of the carrying trade. They gave up somewhat on, on the fishing in the English waters, um, and they declined. Over the th course of the 1700s, they declined, and the English eventually took over most of what the Dutch had had, lest the, lest, uh, the Spice Islands, which the Dutch didn't lose really until World War II. Grant, thank you very much for your time. Appreciate it. It's and been my pleasure. Again, I encourage people to... Uh, Look up uh, some of these uh, histories written about the Anglo-Dutch Wars. If you're into the Age of Sail and uh, you can get over the pronunciation, these are just wonderful uh, uh, subjects to indulge yourself in. And, of course, if they're visiting Annapolis, they can come to the United States Naval Academy Museum to our second deck, and we have uh, one of the greatest ship model collections, British dockyard model collections in the world on display, and several of those are from the Anglo-Dutch Wars. Yes, that, that's true. Um, we have one model that we believe was built between 1650 and 54. That's right in the Commonwealth. That's right when that first Anglo-Dutch War was, was ongoing and probably would have seen action in the second. We also have a number of medals that were um, minted in honor of battles won and lost and uh, commanders in our store collection. Um, we Thirdly, we have one Vandevelde original of one of the English ships that uh, um, was a little late. Actually, that one was a little late. She wasn't uh, launched until 1699. But we have lots and lots of prints of engravings by these great marine artists, uh, the Vandeveldes and others who followed in their wake. So we have lots of visual imagery of the Anglo-Dutch Wars as well. Great. And if you want to see some of those, uh, whether they're uh, the later signal books or the, the uh, videos of some of our ships, you can go to our YouTube site. Just type in USNA Museum, 
either on Twitter, Facebook, or YouTube, and you'll see some of those, and we hope you have a chance to visit here. Grant, thanks again. And uh, to our listeners, thanks for spending time with us. We appreciate you listening. Thanks for the feedback we've received so far from our first eight episodes or seven episodes, and we hope you have a great day. Thank you very much. Rebel Hall is in no way intended to reflect the official positions of the Department of the Navy or the Naval Academy.